Chapter Three of the Submarine Boys for the Flag. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kenneth Sargent Gagan. The Submarine Boys for the Flag by Victor G. Durham. Chapter Three: The Man Who Marked Charts. It was a little before midnight when the Spitfire came to anchor in Craven's Bay. After having been piloted to anchorage by a quartermaster's tug that put off from Fort Craven on signal. Fine place if your searchlight is keen enough, yawned Epp, gazing off into the darkness. Epp and Williamson's had slept through the evening after supper, and were now to take the night watch, the machinist's deck watch beginning at once and lasting until four in the morning. About an hour after daylight, Epp Summers deserted the deck except for occasional intervals. After a while, the odor of coffee and steak was in the air. Then, snatching up a bugle, Summers sounded the reveille tumultuously through the small cabin of the submarine torpedo boat. Not long did the other members of the crew take to turn out and dress. They came out into the cabin to find Epp trotting between table and galley, putting things on the table. This seems like old times, chuckled Williamson, as he seated himself with the boys. Yeah, because you don't have to cook, grimaced Epp. Wait until after breakfast when you have to clear away and wash dishes. Even so, I've had the best of it, laughed the machinist, good-humoredly. I have something in my stomach to work on. I always do get the tough end of any job, don't I? grumbled Epp, resigningly, then buried his troubles under a plate full of steak and fried potatoes. You hoisted the signal N.D. yesterday afternoon, laughed Captain Jack, laying down his cup of coffee. If you don't watch out, Epp, I'll hoist the N.G. flag over this table. Breakfast no good, demanded Epp, looking much offended. No N.G. will stand for no grouch. Summers joined heartily in the laughter that followed. Just as they were finishing a really good meal for which every breakfaster had a royal salt-water appetite, a steamer's whistle was heard not far off to port. I'll bet that's the army tug, muttered Captain Jack, rising hastily from the table. Tell you what, fellows, we got to begin to have something like navy discipline around this craft. In that case, we'd have had breakfast over an hour ago. Jack was off up the stairs, as though pursued. Epp went after him as soon as that youth with a sun-kissed hair had time to pull on his visored cap and button his blouse. No matter what the need of haste, Summers never appeared on the deck looking less natty than a veteran naval officer. Forward on the tug stood a major of engineers, a young lieutenant beside him. "'Good morning, Mr. Benson,' hailed Major Woodruff. We're going to try to come in close enough to put a gangplank over. Can you take a bow line from us? Yes, sir, Captain Jack saluted the Army officer, and Nep hurried to receive the line. In less than two minutes, Major Woodruff and Lieutenant Klein were on the platform deck of the Spitfire. This is the first one of your crafts we've seen, declared the Major, and Nep cast off the bow line and the tug back water. Will you show us over? This the submarine boys gladly did and the army shares with the navy in the defense of this country you see what you have to do klein said major woodruff presently then the older officer turned to jack to say 
Mr. Benson, since Mr. Farnham has been kind enough to place you in the boat at our orders, Klein is going to remain on board today during the tests. It will give Mr. Summers whatever orders are necessary in order to make the tests more successful. Why not give the orders to me, sir, said Jack. Well, you see, Mr. Benson, replied the Major, I plan for you to be on shore out on the neck to make certain observations regarding the work of your craft. Those observations you will turn into me. Very good, sir. The neck, I take it, is the narrow strip of land that separates this part of the bay from the ocean. Quite right, Mr. Benson. It was to be observed that the Major, like naval officers, addressed Jack by the title of Mr., not Captain. This was because, in the military service, Army and Navy titles are not recognized unless conferred by government appointment or commission. Hence, though young Benson was captain to his crew and to his civilians, officers of the United States could address him only as Mr. The neck, Mr. Benson, continued Major Woodruff, is the land best suited for watching our work from today and now. I will state what the object of today's test is. This morning our tug will be engaged in planting certain submarine mines. Mr. Summers, Mr. Summers will watch our work of planting, of course. The mines will contain no explosive. You young men have, I understand, solved the problem of leaving the submarine boat while it lies on the bottom. You are also able to enter the submarine again from the surface. Quite right, Major, Jack nodded. Then if Mr. Summers watches the planting of the dummy mines, he will have the same advantage as would the commander of an enemy submarine knowing where our mines are planted. We shall plant four of them this morning, and Mr. Summers, after seeing each mine planted, will mark down its position on the chart of the bay. He will then take the boat outside, enter underwater, and, without touching any of our mines while handling the boat, We'll see if he can stop close by and cut the connecting wires. If your mines contain no explosive, Major, Epp inquired, how are you going to be able to tell whether I collided gently with one of your submarine mines? We should know at once, smiled Major Widow. If you should collide with one, you will cause a bell to be rung in the camera obscura room over at the fort. The bell that rings will show us which one of the mines you touched against. The camera obscura, as used at a modern fort, is in itself a most interesting contrivance. While no elaborate description of it can be attempted here, it will be enough to explain to the reader that in the camera room, which is darkened, is a large white table covered with white oil cloth or other white substance. On this white surface is drawn a plan of the harbor to be defended. The position of each mine sunk under the water surface is indicated on the map against the white background. Each mine is numbered. Overhead is a revolving shutter, somewhat on the plan of a camera's lens shutter. This shutter, which turns a reflecting lens on the harbor, can be turned in any direction. Any vessel in the harbor can be thus caught and its reflection in miniature thrown upon the white surface. Suppose an enemy's battleship to be entering the harbor. The camera obscura shutter, and being turned about, suddenly throws upon the white screen map the miniature picture of the hostile battleship. Henceforth, the officer in command sees to it that the shutter is so operated as to keep the image of the battleship always upon the white screen. Thus, the course of the battleship is followed. 
absolutely at any second the exact position of that battleship in the harbor is known let us suppose that the officer in command at the white map covered table finds that the battleship is gradually approaching the position indicated in the harbor as mine number nineteen as the officer watches the moving image of the battleship he sees it going closer and closer to the exact spot number nineteen on the white map be ready sergeant calls the officer warningly to a non-commissioned officer who stands before a ward on the wall in which are several electric push-buttons each numbered yes sir replies the sergeant at this moment the officer sees the image of the battleship passing fairly over the dot on the white map that is number nineteen fire nineteen sergeant calls the army officer in charge the non-commissioned officer quickly presses electric button number nineteen as he does so the electric current is sent flashing perhaps along four or five miles of insulated wire on the bottom of the harbor at the other end of that wire is submarine mine number nineteen in a breathless instant the current travels the whole length of the wire the spark has reached the gun cotton there is a dull booming sound a great column of water shoots up from the surface in the midst of the commotion the enemy's battleship is rent and all on board perhaps killed the cool dry-eyed army officer bending over the white screen map sees all this scene on a horror depicted under the white surface beneath his eyes he knows that submarine mine number nineteen planted out there in the harbor has done its duty in protecting this portion of the coast of the united states here at fort craven it was desired to find whether an enemy submarine boat could creep in below the surface find the mine whose location was already known through spies and effectively cutting the fire wire if this could be done then in war time it might be that the sergeant at the wallboard would press the button in vain no explosion would follow with the current thus cut off the officer bending over the white screen would not see the miniature reproduction of the destruction of the enemy's battleship submarine torpedo boat coming into a harbor underneath the surface is not pictured on the white table under the camera obscura so it was desired to see whether Epp could come in knowing the exact locations of each of the four dummy mines and quickly cut the firing electric wires if this could be done the army would have to revise its method of firing such submarine mines by means of the camera obscura detection as that listened to the explanation his mind began to revolve plans rapidly where he hoped succeeded in cutting the mines he will keep sufficiently below the surface too mr summers continued major woodruff we don't want you so close to the surface of the water that a rebel could show on the camera obscura table you cannot of course rise and use your periscope to see where you are even the periscope would betray you periscope is a device also of the nature of a camera obscura in the case of the periscope a narrow metallic tube is thrusted above the water and the shutter turned about reflecting all the scene about on a white covered table in the boat's cabin i think i can beat you major smiled up i certainly hope you can replied major woodruff that is exactly what we want to see today you shall watch closely too and see whether any plan can be devised for beating a submarine torpedo boat at its own game 
Lieutenant Klein was to remain on board the Spitfire, both in order to watch the work and to give Epp any instructions that might be necessary in order to make the test more conclusive. "'If you'll come along with me, then,' Mr. Benson suggested Major Woodruff. "'I'll put you ashore on the neck, and on the way over I'll give you your instructions.' As the tug came alongside again, Jack followed the Major over the gangplank to the deck of the other craft. "'Good-bye, Captain Summers,' called Jack, laughingly. "'Give a fine account of yourself as an enemy of the United States.' "'Oh, you!' began Epp, flaring right but wisely cutting his speech short. On the way over to the strip of land known as the Neck, Major Woodruff managed to make his instructions wholly clear to young Benson. "'Now you know what to watch for, and what observations to report to me,' finished the Major of Engineers." As the tug came to a stop, a small boat was lowered, and in this Captain Jack Benson was put on the desolate shore. Then the tug went back over by the fort. Jack grew tired of waiting, for it was some two hours. The tug finally left the ordnance wharf at Fort Craven. It was warm out there on the low, sandy cliffs, provided one got into a position sheltered from the ocean winds. So Jack, in the weariness of his waiting, threw himself down in a sheltered hollow. Finding that the sun shone disagreeably in his eyes, the submarine boy pulled his cap forward over his face. Then, in the course of a very few minutes, the inevitable happened. Jack Benson drifted off to sleep. He awoke with a fearful start, for he had no idea how long he had slept. Yanking out his watch and noting the time, the submarine boy concluded that he had not been asleep for more than twenty or thirty minutes. But I might just as easily have slept for hours, Benson reproached himself. Then what a hero I'd have felt asleep on the post. At that moment, Jack Benson heard a faraway whistle. Across the bay, showing just the top of his head above the ridge of sand, Captain Jack saw the army tug just pulling out from the dock across the bay. But Jack saw something else, too, in that brief instant. A slim, soldierly-looking man of perhaps thirty, tall and of naturally good carriage, was sculling along the front of the submarine boy yet hidden from the babe. Under one arm, the stranger carried a draftsman's board and a book. Strapped over one shoulder held a field-glass case. "'Where in blazes have I seen that chap before?' wondered Captain Jack Benson, staring hard. "'For I've seen him somewhere, as I declare that under oath. "'Figure, carnage, and face all strangely haunted the submarine boy, "'who crouched lower, watching. "'By the great tarragon, he's skulking for a reason,' muttered Benson. "'Is he spying on the mine-planting? "'I wonder, yes, that must be his work. "'Long legs, I'll keep my eye on you.' The stranger hastened along for perhaps a quarter of a mile further. Then he threw himself down on the sand, choosing a position which he could lie flat, his head fairly well hidden behind a low ridge of sand. Unslinging the field-glass case, the stranger brought it to his eyes, closely watching the progress of the tug. The minutes passed, though Jack Benson was so absorbed in watching this long stranger that the boy had but the vaguest notions of the flight of the time. The tug had halted. Now a great crane at the bow swung round, and the submarine mind, 
hung poised in the air. Then, with a rattle of chains not audible at the distance, the mine was slowly lowered until it touched the bottom. While this was going on, the long-legged stranger, wholly absorbed in his work, made some observations and hurried calculations. Then he pulled the drawing board toward him, jotting down a point. Jack Benson, standing stealthily, got a good look for the first time at the top of that drawing board. A chart of the bay, of course, muttered Benson savagely between his teeth. The feller is marking down the exact positions of that mine. Still, the submarine boy did nothing to betray his own presence. He watched and wondered. The thought struck him that this long-legged one might be an officer of the army on observation duty like the submarine boy himself. Uh, but that isn't right, I'm sure it isn't, decided young Benson quickly. If they fellow were here on honest business, he wouldn't have sneaked out here to get a position. Besides, I have a vague remembrance of this fellow, and I don't connect with him anything that's honest. The army tug out in the bay was now engaged in planting a second mine. Again, the slim stranger was all attention. When the crane began to lower the mine, a second mark was made on the chart of the drawing board. Now once, the fellow lay at full length watching intently over the bay. At his right hand lay drawing board, the book, and the field glasses. I'll give him a little excitement, grimaced Jack Benson, stealing softly forward. Suddenly, the boy swooped down upon the drawing board, book, and glasses. Then, with a panting whoop, wheeled and started off in a dead run. "'Here you! Stop!' yelled the slim one, hoarse with a sudden anger. Like a flash, the stranger was up and in pursuit. As he quickened in the chase, the stranger drew a revolver that glinted in the sun. End of chapter 3 Recording by Kenneth Sergeant Gagan